Thank you for listening to New Hope Chapel's podcast. Pastored by Reverend Gary Dereshinsky, New Hope Chapel is located in Arnold, Maryland. You can find us on the web at www.newhopechapel.org. Now here's Pastor Gary Dereshinsky with today's message. Now today is also uh, Pentecost, right? Pentecost Sunday. So I wanted to speak on the work of the Holy Spirit. So to do that, if you had your Bibles, uh, turn with me to the Gospel of John. I'd like us to look at three passages. This passage in John chapter 14, in which the Lord Jesus promises to us the work and presence of the Holy Spirit in our midst. Then I want us to take a look at Acts chapter 2, where the Holy Spirit comes as Jesus promised he would come. And then I want to take a very quick look at 1 Corinthians chapter 12, where Paul makes some comments with respect to the present work of the Spirit in all of our lives. So if you have your Bibles, look at John chapter 14, uh, beginning at verse 15. This is, of course, in the upper room. This is where Jesus is celebrating Passover with his disciples. He's getting ready to go to the cross. Before that, he's going to go to the Mount of Olives, at the base of which is the Garden of Gethsemane, where he will pray. Of course, Gethsemane means olive press, and it's located at the base of the Mount of Olives. And so all of that sort of ties in uh, logistically and in terms of these names and phrases and location. And, but before Jesus leaves his disciples, uh, the discourse that he teaches, referred to as oftentimes as the upper room discourse, is given to us in John chapters, well, 12 or uh, through ver- chapter 16. Very large section in John's gospel. But if you look at John chapter 14, verse 15, Jesus says, if you love me, you will obey what I command. And I will ask the Father and he will give you another counselor to be with you forever. The spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Before long, the world will not see me anymore, but you will see me. Because I live, you will also live. On that day, you will realize that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. Whoever has my commands and obeys them, he is the one who loves me. He who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love him and show myself to him. It's a very fascinating passage because he's focusing on the Holy Spirit, but in the context of obedience. In fact, if you look at this section, it opens up with, if you love me, you'll obey me. It closes with, whoever has my commandments and obeys them, he's the one who loves me. Love for the Lord Jesus is seen in obedience to him. Not the other way around. Obeying him does not gain his love toward us. Our love for him is exhibited in our obedience toward him. But it doesn't gain his favor. He already loves us. But we obey him in response to his prior love, demonstrating our love for him. But here's the question. How can we love him? By obeying his commands. But how do we obey his commands? So that's the difficulty. It's one thing to talk about obedience. It's another thing to talk about understanding the commands. It's another thing to do them. And that's where the trial is. That's where the struggle is. So what does Jesus tell us? He says that he will give us another counselor. For what purpose? To help us obey him. And why or how is it that he will grant us this counselor? This is kind of a neat thing too because this section suggests that God, by means of his spirit, will do an incredible miracle within us. And that miracle that he will do within us will somehow 
and I don't want to go too far with this, but somehow will interconnect us in the very triunity of God. Somehow we are in fellowship with the living God. Because if you look at verse 14, Jesus says, uh, verse 13, I will do whatever you ask in my name. He says, so that the Son of Man may bring glory to the Father. You may ask me for anything, I will do it. And then if you look at verse 16, the Lord Jesus says, I will ask of the Father and he will give it. So it's like the Son can ask of the Father and he will give it. We can ask of the Son and he will do it. That kind of language is meant to say we're sort of interconnected with the living God. And so when he says here that the Spirit of God, this counselor, will be given to us to enable us to obey him, it's like we're brought into the sphere of God's presence. We're always distinct from him, but we're somehow united to him in a profound and new kind of way. That's why he says in this passage, he is with you, but then he says, and he will be in you. So up until this time, the work of the Holy Spirit, certainly the Spirit of God was present. He's the living God. He is omniscient and omnipotent and omnipresent. He always was. He is God. He's the third person of the triunity of God. He was at the creation. The Spirit of God hovered over the waters. He is present throughout all of eternity because he, like the Father and Son, is God. And he's not an it, right? All through here, you see the personal pronoun he. He will come to you. He will be with you. He will dwell in you. He is a person, though he's a person that we cannot see because he never took on human flesh like the second person of the triunity, the Son of God. The only reason we could see Jesus is because he took on human form at some point. And in taking on human form when he was born at Bethlehem, he now joined to his divine nature a human nature. And that's why theologians refer to him as the God-man. Not the man who became God, but God who became a man. And so these are all unique things, and they're really involved, but we need to understand them if we're going to benefit from them and if we're going to glorify our Lord, because he's the spirit of truth, Jesus says here. And as the spirit of truth, he wants to inform us of what is not only right, but also what is true. And so what he tells us here is that the third person of the triunity, like the first and second person, is a person. And he is the spirit of truth. Later in the same chapter, he will be spoken of as the Holy Spirit. Why? Because he bears the holiness of God. One of the characteristics, Carl spoke about mercy and about love or faithfulness and love. But another characteristic of God is that he is holy. He is righteous. He is good. And thus, he is referred to, or the third person is referred to as the spirit of holiness. Because he is holy, therefore he is the Holy Spirit. So what is Jesus telling his disciples? He's telling them that when I go, because I'm going to the cross, he's been telling them that throughout his ministry with them. They have not yet grasped that. In fact, at one point, Peter says, oh, be it far from you that you would ever go to the cross and die. And Jesus' words to Peter are, get behind me, Satan. It is for this very reason that the Lord has sent me into the world to die for the sins of the world. So yes, I will die, but I will not leave you as orphans, he says here. I'm going to send the Spirit of God to dwell within you. Not only to be with you, but to dwell within you. And therefore, because I live, you live. 
And while the world will not see me because I will depart, you will see me because you will receive of my spirit. Now, it doesn't necessarily mean you'll see me physically, although they will for 40 days after his resurrection, but that they would see him by means of the spirit of God who would energize them and empower them. And they will see him at work through their efforts and through their service and through their ministry. Now, Jesus says here, if you love me, you will obey me. How will we obey him? By the empowering presence of God's spirit, whom he promises to give us. He hasn't given it to them yet, but he says, I will give them. If I don't go away, he cannot come, he will say. So in Acts chapter 2, we're going to turn there in a moment, we will see the historical background with respect to how the Holy Spirit came as Jesus promised he would. But at this point, he says he's with you, just as the Holy Spirit had been with all the righteous men and women in the Old Testament, but now something new is about to unfold. The Holy Spirit will not only be with you, he will dwell within you. And what Jesus says is, in verse uh, 16, I will ask the Father, he will give you another counselor. Now these two words are really significant. There are two words in Greek for another. There's the Greek word heteros, another of a different kind. But then there's the worse, the, uh, the word, and it just got out of my mind, alan, alan, because you, you went like this when I, when I said heteros. So I thought, uh-oh, there's a Greek scholar in our midst. So now I'm stuck. No, alan is the Greek word that means another of the same kind. And that's the word that's used here. So that when Jesus says, I'm going to give you another counselor, he means to say, another one like me is one I'm going to send. And when he uses the word counselor, the word counselor is the word parakletos. And para means one that comes alongside. And kletos comes from the Greek word kaleo, which means to call. And thus a parakletos is one who is called alongside. It's the same word, or very similar, to the word church. The Greek word church is ekklesia. And that comes from the Greek word ek, which means out of, and kaleo, to call. So the ekklesia, or church, are those ones who are called out of the world. And this one who is going to be sent by the Son of God to those whom he loves and those who love him is one who will be called alongside of us. So some translations say counselor. Some translations say comforter. They all mean one who comes alongside of us to aid us, to guide us, to be present with us. And Jesus says, will be with us forever. And thus he will never leave us nor forsake us. The Lord Jesus says that in Matthew. How will that be possible? Because the spirit whom he promises to give will be in us and dwell within us. Now, the disciples didn't understand all that, even as we're kind of confused as to what did I just say. But we don't understand all of that either, even though that's what the scripture is telling us. The Spirit of God would be sent by the Son of God, and he would dwell within us. He would be one just like Jesus, who would be called alongside of us to aid us, to guide us, to reveal to us the truth, and to empower us to obey him. Because by obeying him, we can demonstrate our love for him. And that's what Jesus is 
referring to. And this one other thing that I think is just so uh, remarkable is that somehow in the swirl of all this, there is even an interconnection that occurs that unites us to the very triune God himself. So that when the Lord Jesus says, if I ask of the Father, he will do it. And if you ask of me, uh, I will bring it about. It's like this parallel of ideas. Why? Because we are united to the living God of the universe. That is what salvation is all about. Salvation is not becoming a moral person. There are plenty of moral people out there who don't know the Lord. There are people you would prefer to do business with who don't know the Lord than those that do know the Lord. You know what I'm talking about. It's just the way it is. You know You know there are people out there who don't know the Lord, who are as generous as can be, and there are people who are who are the most stingiest people in the world and would never help people. There are people who are tremendous philanthropists who give generously, and yet, you know, Churches are like struggling to make it because the people in their churches just don't reflect that same characteristic. What's the point? Salvation is not about becoming a moral person. Salvation is about becoming connected to the living God. And as the result of his work in our lives, perhaps we might be changed to be better than what we once were, to be conformed into the image of his son. That process, that's what God wants to do with us. It's not about a religion. It's about a relationship. And that's what Jesus is saying here. The Spirit of God will dwell in you. You will have a relationship with the living God of the universe and an inner connection that comes about by my Spirit, which, or who cannot come until I go. So when does he come? Take a look at this in Acts chapter 2. In Acts chapter 2, he comes on Pentecost. Now, Pentecost is not a Greek festival, although that's a Greek word, 50-day feast. Pentecost is a Jewish festival. So now, here are the festivals. In Leviticus chapter 23, you have the seven major Jewish festivals that are critical. We're not going to look at all of them, but the first three are important to us. Passover, Feast of First Fruits, and Pentecost. Now, Jesus died on, on Passover. Now, we might say Jesus could have died at any time. No, that's not really true. He had to die on Passover because Passover is the anniversary festival of Israel's redemption from Egypt, and now the Messiah would come and die on that occasion to provide redemption from sin. So he couldn't really die any time, and he couldn't die in any way because the prophets told us how he would die. He certainly couldn't be crushed because none of his bones could be broken. He couldn't have been uh, strangled because he had to have his hands and feet pierced. The, the prophets say that. So he had to die a certain way. He had to die in a certain place, and he had to die on a certain time, and that was Passover. Now, his resurrection had to occur at a certain time as well, three days after Passover. That's the Feast of first fruits. And on that occasion, Jesus becomes the first fruits of those who sleep or those who die. Now, the Spirit of God could not come at any time. He had to come on the festival of Shavuot. The word Shavuot comes from the Hebrew word Sheva, which means seven. So Shavuot is a plural form, so it means sevens. So you say sevens of what? Well, it's sevens 
of weeks. So seven weeks is 49 days. And so the Feast of Shavuot is 49 days after the Feast of First Fruits. You say, well, wait a minute, the Greek name is Pentecost. That's 50 days. Where did you get that extra day? Well, because you always have to remember, in the Jewish calendar of reckoning, you always count the day you start. So as I said before, and I've said it to some of my students, you know, if you're in Israel and you meet a girl, that is if you're a guy, and you meet a girl and you say, I've got to meet this girl again. And you're at Monday and you say, I'll meet you in three days at the Wailing Wall because you want to pray with her. So you're going to be at the... because you're going to be at the wailing, at the wailing wall, you better get there on Wednesday, not Thursday. Because Jewish reckoning even today is to count Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. But no, you went Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and she doesn't want to know you anymore, you know. So you have to count the day that it starts. So 49 days from the Feast of of first fruits, counting the feast of first fruits gives us the extra day, it's 50 days. And so it's a 50 day feast. It's on that occasion the Spirit of God was to be given to the believers, the disciples of the Lord Jesus. The Jewish people celebrate, when they celebrate Shavuot or Pentecost, when they celebrate this occasion, because it's the only festival that's connected to a previous festival, right? It's so many days after the previous festival, which is the Feast of First Fruits, which is also the third day of Passover. So because it's connected in that context, the Jewish people celebrate on this occasion the giving of the law at Mount Sinai. Why? Because the exodus from Egypt is not only about getting out of something, it's also about getting into something. So what did they get out of? They got out of bondage in Egypt. What did they get into? They got into a covenantal relationship with God through the Mosaic law given at Mount Sinai. So you get escape from something, but redemption is more than merely escaping. It's also entering into. And in the New Testament, that's the same truth. It's more than being bought out of a marketplace of sin. How often have we heard that? You know, the Greek word for uh, redemption means to be purchased out of the marketplace of sin. Well, it does mean that, but it means more than that. It also means being brought into a living and dynamic relationship with the living God. So because of that connection, on Pentecost, the Jewish people celebrate the giving of the law on Mount Sinai. Now, when we turn to Acts chapter 2, you find that Jerusalem is now teeming with people. In fact, when Peter gets up to speak, he's speaking to people from all over the Roman Empire, who've come to celebrate the Feast of Pentecost. Why? Because it's one of three pilgrimage festivals, Passover, Pentecost, and the Feast of Tabernacles. All Jewish men were to come up to Jerusalem to worship the Lord. Josephus tells us the population of Jerusalem is usually at 150,000 people in the first century. When these pilgrimage festivals occurred, the population, he said, would grow to nearly a million. So you've got people camped out all over. That gives you an idea of what was going on when Jesus was being crucified and that on Passover when he was suffering because there's so many people that are filling Jerusalem. So Josephus tells us there's about a million people and when you read Acts chapter 2, you find that Paul, uh, excuse me, Peter is preaching to crowds of Jewish people and 3,000 come to faith. 
What's interesting is that when the apostles gather, Jesus told them, chapter 1 of Acts chapter 1, Jesus told them after he was with them for 40 days that they were to remain in Jerusalem for the promise that God was going to provide them with, the promise of the Holy Spirit, and that when the Holy Spirit came, they would be empowered to be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Samaria, uh, Judea, and the uttermost parts of the earth. Now, the neat thing about the disciples is they obey Jesus on this point. They stay in Jerusalem. And after Jesus ascends, they head to a room upstairs in an apartment dwelling. And they spend the next 10 days or so, because it's 40 days he was with them. Pentecost is going to come at 50 days. So they were probably there for maybe 10 days or so. And they're doing one thing. They are praying. And that's what reminds me of Jim's symbolist message about going to the throne of grace and prayer. There they were praying. They were not studying the word, although maybe they were reading it. They were not engaged in ministry, in service, in outreach. They were engaged in one primary, maybe exclusively one thing, and that was prayer. And they were praying probably about a variety of things, but certainly about the promise that Jesus had told them about in the upper room that we had already looked at. When we get into chapter 2, and they're in the upper room, and we know that there are about 120, it says the, a rushing wind then flies through that room. It doesn't mean the whole city of Jerusalem, but right there, there is a manifestation of God's presence by his spirit in this rushing wind, the sound of this wind that's flying through this room. At the same time, there are these flames of fire that appear over them, and they begin to give praise to God in a variety of languages that they had not previously learned before. And what's kind of neat about this is that when the law was given at Mount Sinai, you have similar manifestations happening. You have fire on the top of Mount Sinai. You have lightning. You have an earthquake, it says, occurred. And you have rushing wind that is blowing through the mountain as God is making his presence known and he's giving the commandments. Here, the same sort of phenomena happens on a smaller scale as the Spirit of God descends upon these individuals. This is an answer to Jesus' promise to send the Spirit. It also begins what's known as the church, the body of believers, as I mentioned before, the called out ones. And here they are gathered now, praying and now speaking out. And with that, they begin to circulate out into the city of Jerusalem. Now, there's a lot of controversy as to what is transpiring. I've been reading and rereading this text, and I think there may be reason to conclude that those that were speaking were probably only the apostles. Now, in the upper room, there were men and women. It says Mary, the mother of Jesus, was there. Other women were there as well. No doubt they were speaking as the other men were. No doubt the Spirit of God was exhibited in the flames of fire. But what is striking to me when they circulate out is the statements that are made. One is found in Acts chapter 2, just so I get it properly, when they say, um, 
when Peter explains, he says in verse 14, Peter stood up with the 11, raised his voice, addressed the crowd, said, fellow Jews and all you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. These men are not drunk as you suppose. Now, the Greek word here is not like humanity. This is the word males. It's a very specific word. So now it appears, it appears, though maybe can't say conclusively, but it appears that as they circulate out from the room, it's the men that are particularly uh, continuing to speak to the crowds of people who are present. Because he said, these men are not drunk as you think. Some of them said, are not these men, there it is, that's what I was looking for, verse 7, are not all these men who are speaking Galileans? Now that's another interesting thing, Galileans. See, because the disciples of Jesus were Galileans. But not all the people in the upper room were Galileans. So now it makes me think, maybe it was just the 11 apostles who were speaking out in public. We certainly know one of them was Peter because his message is presented. So it may not have been as, you know, some people suggest that they came out of the upper room and 120 are mulling around the city speaking all these different languages to people who understand them with flames of fire over their heads. It may very well be there's just these 10, 11 men that remain of his 12 disciples who are present because Galileans, he says, these men. That's just my thought on it as I kept trying to imagine what was transpiring. Now, when Moses comes down from the mountain with the tablets of the law, the people are worshiping a golden calf. So what does Moses do? He throws the tablets down. They break. Those that are united with Moses come to his side. And then Moses calls the Levites, of which he is one, to slay those that were worshiping the golden calf, and 3,000 are killed. When you look at Acts chapter 2, it's very fascinating that as Peter presents the good news, and over and over, read it, we don't have time to do this, but over and over, he makes reference to the Holy Spirit. You know, like he'll quote David, and he'll say, the Holy Spirit said through David. Could have said David said, could have said God said, but this focus on the Holy Spirit over and over again makes me think that Peter is now making this connection with what Jesus had said in the upper room, with what they're experiencing, the empowerment for obedience and to be his witnesses beginning in Jerusalem as he stands up to give testimony with respect to who Jesus is, how he's fulfilled scripture and the difference he's made in our lives. And when he stands up to do that, rather than 3,000 being killed, 3,000 experience redemption. It can't be an accident that these two events are paralleled like that because God in his mercy is trying to speak to his people. Remember who he's talking to. They're talking to Jews and proselytes who are celebrating these Jewish festivals. These are not Gentiles now. These are Jews he's speaking to and on this festival he's bringing all of these factors in that the Jewish people would be very much aware of and utilizing them to reinforce the truth that the spirit of God is now descending as Jesus had promised and that it all fits to justify their trust in him as their savior. Now, one last passage. When Paul speaks about this, he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, when he speaks of the believers, at that point, you know, you have these disciples that are are experiencing the presence of God's spirit. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, now that event, this is written around 50 AD. So that event is some 20 years earlier, right? 
The Acts chapter 2 is 20 years before Paul writes this. So a lot of time has uh, gone on. Now when he writes to the believers in Corinth, he says in verse um, 7, no, 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 verse 12, he says, the body is a unit, though it is made up of many parts. And though all its parts are many, they form one body. So it is with the Messiah. For we were all baptized by one spirit into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, and we were all given the one spirit to drink. So what does Paul now say? Paul is telling us that every believer, we were all, think about the church at Corinth. If there was a church that had a lot of problems, it's this church. There was divisiveness. There was sin, he says, that has not even been named in any other sphere, even among the Gentiles, he says, 1 Corinthians chapter 5. He speaks about this party spirit. Some are of Apollo, some are of Paul, some say, hey, but we're of Jesus, man. So, you know, you could take those other two. We've got you. You know, it's like really what crazy things going on. And, and then some were saying the gifts of the spirit would be in present. And some would say, hey, I speak in tongues. No one said, yeah, but that doesn't mean anything unless you got me to interpret. And someone else would say, well, yeah, but that doesn't mean anything, you know, because I've got the gift of prophesying. Yeah, well, I'm an apostle. I mean, it's like, then they started being prideful over the various gifts. This was a church that was like none of us would want to be a part of, you know. And Paul, though, loves these people, right? I mean, he writes four letters to them. We have two of them, but he wrote four. And he visited the church and spent nearly three years with them. So this is a church that he is very much riveted to and in love with, despite all their problems. And yet, despite those problems, he says, we were all, including himself. You know, we are members together. We are one body with all of our weirdnesses. We are one in the Lord. And we were all baptized. No, 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 not just those that tarry, not just those that pray real hard. You know, Jesus did not say to do any of that, remember. All he told them to do was to wait for the gift of his father. He never said anything about make sure you're praying, tarrying, uh, devoting yourself, asking, requesting, desire. He doesn't say anything. This is a gift that God is giving you. And then when we get to 1 Corinthians, Paul says we all were. And so what is going on? And he also now uses this phrase, we're all baptized by the Spirit. Now that's important to understand because to be baptized means to be identified with. We always think of baptism as being immersed into something. Yes, the word means to be immersed, that's true. But its significance doesn't lie in what happens. It lies in what it means to be baptized. It means to be identified with something. So when Jesus goes to John the Baptist and says, baptize me, and John says, I am not fit to untie your sandal latchet, and I'm going to baptize you, no, 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 no. And Jesus says, yes, to fulfill all righteousness. What is Jesus saying? Jesus is identifying himself publicly with John's ministry. He's not repenting of his sin because he has no sin to repent of. The others did, but not he, so why did he do it? He did it to identify with John's back-to-God movement. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. 
Here is the kingdom of heaven at hand, the Lord Jesus. And he's identifying himself with John's ministry. That's what it means to be baptized. And when you are baptized in water, you are identifying yourself with the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And you are saying, as it were, through this symbolic act, that that is what I believe Jesus did for me, and that is what I've experienced through him, a new life in him. That's what it means. So when Paul says, we have all been baptized by the Spirit, what it means is the Spirit of God has enabled us to be identified with the living God. And that's what Jesus said back in John. That when I ask of the Father, he will do it. When you ask of me, I will do it. The Spirit of God is going to bring about a uniting and identifying with a oneness with the living God. And Paul says here, that's true for all of us. It doesn't matter uh, how much we struggle in our walk with God. We all struggle differently, but we all struggle. What matters is that the Holy Spirit has identified us and placed us as members in the body of Christ and has connected us with the living God. And over time, he will empower us, as he says in Acts chapter 2, not only to be his witnesses, but to, John 14, obey him. And so on this occasion, when we have a time to reflect on the descent of the Holy Spirit and his uh, filling of his uh, disciples in Acts chapter 2, you and I are ones that if we've invited the Lord into our lives, like them, we too have been united to the Lord and empowered by him to obey him and to manifest his presence and thereby to glorify him. So my um, prayer for us all is that, number one, we're really seeking that relationship with God because in the relationship we would ask of him, help me with this, lead me with that, reveal to me this truth, help me understand this, enable me to comply with this. See, it's not merely about knowing what's right and saying, well, that's the right thing to do. I'm going to do it. It's really about, Lord, I'm connected to you. I need you within my heart and within my soul. I need to connect with you. I need to walk with you. And we have to have that sense of relationship and communion with him day by day, moment by moment, as we are enabled to. And again, I come back to that marvelous example of Enoch in the book of Genesis, where it says, Enoch walked with God, and God took him. And he took him because he walked with him faithfully throughout his life. Now, think about this, too, with Enoch. You know, he was 315 years old when the Lord took him. But the people of his day lived like 700, 800, 600 years, you know, so what kind of a walk must have uh, of Enoch had that in the prime of his life at 300, you know, in his youth, you know, God says, I want that one with me now because he's walked with me. I mean, how much closer can he walk? The only closer I, he can walk with me is if I bring him to me, you know, it's sort of like what I think. And I remember hearing Steve Brown, pastor down in Kemos Game, Florida, and he said, you know, it's sort of like God having his arm around Enoch and saying, you know, we've walked together all these years. We're a lot closer to my house than we are to your house. Why don't you just come home with me, you know? 
And I think that's kind of a neat story. It's just stayed in my mind. But that's what the Lord wants for us. And that's what the presence of God's Spirit is meant to do for us. Hello, everyone. This is Pastor Gary of New Hope Chapel. Thanks so much for listening to our podcast. I hope it was a blessing and encouragement to you. Our church, New Hope Chapel, is located in Arnold, Maryland, just outside of Annapolis. So if you're ever visiting in our area, please come by, say hello, and visit with us. We'd love to have you. You can find out more information about our church at newhopechapel.org on the web. So we hope to see you soon. God bless.